Well, this morning our scripture reading will be from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 27. And there we find the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is the word of our God. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's again to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll be looking at the first part of verse 25 this morning. Ephesians 5, verse 25, the husband's priority is love. The husband's priority is love. Feminists believe that they have an obligation to protect women from conservative Christian men. And I want to kind of give you a um, case in point here, uh, read something to you that I thought was kind of interesting. It really fits what we're talking about here and making that point. Um, Twenty-two years ago, I had sent off for a uh, reprint or a copy of a uh, an article that John Piper had written called Satan's Design in Reversing Male male leadership role. So Satan's design in reversing male leadership role. And this was back before you could just go on to the internet and, and, you know, and pull up an article or whatever. So you had to actually write them a letter and send it to them, you know, and they'd send you a letter back. And so the, the associate editor of that, if this was published in the standard, uh, uh, news magazine of the Baptist General Conference and and so the, the gentleman who was sending me a copy of this uh, replied with a letter saying this, Dear Mr. Dugas, here is the John Piper article you requested. Because it was part of a series in which two viewpoints were published side by side, I have enclosed the companion article for balance. Okay, So given the companion article, that makes sense. I get that. But why did he have to throw in there, a John Piper article for balance. Okay, well, it gets better. <clears throat> he goes on. As you know, there is the risk of men using scripture texts as support for treating women in unbiblical ways, demanding, 
enforcing submission rather than earning it through love and trust and mutual submission one to another, Ephesians 5.21, and there he's referring to the unbiblical feminist understanding of that verse. And he says, certainly Piper's article does not support forced submission, and the Mickelson's article also, the Mickelson's also do well in discrediting it. And so he had to uh, send along this article by uh, Alvira Mickelson and her husband Berkeley. Uh, some of you may be old enough to have heard their names, especially Alvira, Alvira Mickelson. Uh, very prominent in, in a lot of these uh, feminist circles, uh, you know, 20 years ago and, and before. It's just interesting how he felt like he had to protect me and provide balance because here I am asking for a John Piper article, and so obviously I could, you know, think that, okay, I can abuse my wife, you know, after reading John Piper's article. And and, and while he, he says, you know, well, surely Piper didn't advocate that, but you need this other article. Now, the, the Mickelson's article... Um, it doesn't provide balance at all. It doesn't even provide a biblical uh, framework, even though the title of it says, you know, about male headship in the garden, you know, and so are male and female relationships in the garden. And and basically what they do is they tell you what the Bible says without actually showing you. And because that there's nothing in what they said that's even actually biblical. So uh, it's kind of interesting how they feel like they have to protect us. It's their job to think for us and to protect us. From errors. Now, granted, men have often been to blame. Um, you know, so we're not saying that that's never happened. John MacArthur even admits that throughout history, the most dominant distortion of relationships has been on man's side. And that's still very prevalent in most parts of the world today. And that's hard for us to grasp because, you know, we are exposed to Western culture. And in Western culture, it's actually the opposite, where feminism is, is more of, of that which is eroding our culture. Although there, there are problems with uh, male domination here, but outside of Western culture, it's very prevalent still. But we saw in an earlier lesson that the culprit behind abuse or abusing or domineering women is not conservative biblical teaching the way that the feminists want us to think. In fact, it's the failure of men to live out all of what God reveals to us and requires of us in Scripture. Some of the worst actors in our day are men who say they hold to conservative biblical teaching, and yet they don't live out the rest of what God requires, in particular, the Christ-like character and behavior that Scripture lays upon all of us. We saw in that earlier lesson that merely having right beliefs is not enough. A man, yes, must have solid biblical beliefs, but he must also be faithfully committed to his church and be lovingly engaged with his wife and children, because that's what the scriptures require. And the the data that and we were looking at conclusions drawn from data, that data showed that men who have all of that, they have the right beliefs, they are committed to their churches, and they're lovingly engaged with their wives and children, are far less likely to be abusive than all other groups of men, including men who hold to feminist beliefs. 
Godly husbands, we saw, are servant leaders who imitate Jesus. Now, we've seen, though, that like male chauvinism, feminism, too, is a great error. Through both of those errors, Satan schemes to mar God's image in man and woman, even beyond the damage done by the fall. But under the new covenant, God's plan is to glorify His Son, Jesus Christ, through His relationship with His bride, the church, and marriage imitates that we're going to, we're going to talk about. And so it's no wonder that Satan is hard at work to try to blur the testimonies that you godly wives can have and the testimonies that we godly husbands can have to point others to Christ and His relationship to the church. And so we must be wise to Satan's schemes. Well, I want us to tie together two concepts. We've looked at one already and a little bit of the other one. So the image of God on the one hand, you can see on the slides the two dark green boxes toward the top. The image of God and glorifying Christ. And I want to tie those two together. We're going to walk through some illustrations here. And, and as we remember where we've been in our study, this larger study of the role of men and women in the home and in the church. So... Remember back in our study in Genesis 1 and 2, where God reveals His image in us, humanity, mankind, as male and female. And so in our marriages, He reveals His son's relationship to His bride. And so that's where, and at the bottom row there, so you've got male, female, husband, wife, and you've got Christ and His bride or the church, right? So you can see the connections. And what... What we're doing here is we're now seeing how all of this comes together biblically. These two images, that that original creation of God's where He created us as male and female in His, in his image. And then how He takes the, the relationship of Christ and His church and how our marriages is actually what pulls that together and then exemplifies it to those around us. <clears throat> we learned how women image God in their role of helper, giver of life, and nurturer. And so first, in submitting, the wife is there manifesting that role of helper to her husband as she submits to her husband. And so you can see how that that connection. So Genesis 1 and 2, she is to be helper. Okay. And then now in Ephesians 5 that she is to submit. And that's, there's the, the parallel between those and how those are, are brought together. And then that reflects the church's submission to Christ. You see so how that brings in, and we talked about that, how you ladies have this opportunity to, to preach very profoundly through your submission to your husband. And you're pointing to Christ and His church when you do that. Now, think of the wife's other two roles that we mentioned, but they're not discussed here in Ephesians 5. Uh, those of <clears throat> giving life. Uh, and, and you can see how this ties in with the church's relationship. Okay, so we, we kind of step back and look at the larger scriptural teaching. The, the woman's uh, role of giving life, and of course you think biologically here initially, that's what Genesis 1 and 2 was talking about. But then that is pointing to the church's role, and so the church's role in evangelism. So how you, we, we as the church, all of us, are seeking to lead people to Christ. And so the woman being a giver of life 
is a picture of that of what the church does in in evangelizing the world and bringing people to Christ so that they can find new life. Then also, third thing, nurturing. Her nurturing points to discipleship. See, so, you know, ladies, as you have nurtured, if you, you have had children, you've nurtured them, you've raised them, and and a lot, a lot of that was discipleship, right? And as parenting is discipleship. And so... Uh, that points to the church and what the church does in, in her, her obedience to Christ and how she makes disciples, how she, you know, and in the evangelism, bringing them to Christ and then teaching them all that, that he gave, all the commands that he gave us and how to walk with Christ properly. And so uh, as women raise their children and disciple them, it reminds us of our role as the church, the bride of Christ, how we uh, obey our husband, Christ, if you will, and do all of these uh, or as, as we sorry as you disciple your children it reminds us of our goal to disciple those around us bringing them to Christ and teaching them now turning our attention to the men we first need to consider this Kevin DeYoung warns we need to be careful we don't equate our preferred type of masculinity with biblical manhood and this is going to be a long quote I know conservatives want to push back the tide of feminism and fight against the emasculation of men in our culture, which those are real problems. But offering stereotypes is not the way to do it. It is not fair to say, without qualification, real men hunt and fish. Real men like football. Real men watch ultimate fighting. Real men love Braveheart. Real men change the oil and chop firewood. It's one thing for pastors to give men permission to be like this. It's another to prescribe that they must. And some churches do that. They say, okay, you've got to do these sorts of things. You know, you men, you need to do these sorts of things in order to be godly men. And, and that's, it. he says, you simply can't prove from the Bible that manliness must look like William Wallace. But there's a, there are a lot of books out there and blogs and everything that are saying just that. So, that all said, the man's role in the image of God that we've seen is to be the leader, to be the protector and the provider. And we saw that in Genesis 1 and 2, and we've seen it uh, even working its way in through the New Testament. That's his role as husband in God's image, or as male, his maleness in God's image. And that's going to tie into Christ as Savior. See, so how uh, you can see he, Christ as Savior leads sacrificially. He washes his bride, the church, with the word. And how he nourishes and cherishes. And so the husband is to do those same things toward their wives. As they both in the image of God, but also imitating Christ. Men are not called to emulate William Wallace, but someone far more profound. God's role as Savior in the Old Testament. You know, and guys, I know you, you, sometimes you listen to some of these folks that are that are advocating, um, you know, the we need to be, all of us men need to be just like William Wallace or whatever or whoever, you know, and uh, or some football player or what, you know, that kind of thing. They present it as if the alternative is for us to be weak and wimpy. Okay? The Bible doesn't present anything like that. And it's not an either or. Those are both wrong. Okay? 
It's neither one of those. Okay? Because what we find in the Bible, that God's role as Savior, and, and you're thinking with me here about Ephesians 5, Christ as, remember verse 23, the Savior of the body. That's the image. And so you think back even in the Old Testament as God as Savior, where He is presented there as strong and powerful. He is the one who comes to the aid of His people. He loves His people. He seeks their good. He seeks their rescue. He seeks their flourishing. And so you find in these passages in the Old Testament how God is strong and powerful. He is this mighty warrior that comes to the rescue of His people. But, as He saves, He shows the tenderness and gentleness of a shepherd. And you can think Old Testament, Psalm 23. Think New Testament. Jesus said what? He is gentle and lowly. And, and I find that a lot of guys are really uncomfortable with that teaching, Jesus saying, I am gentle and lowly. And they'd rather just not even talk about it. And, and not even think, because to them, that's, that is just, you know, weak and wimpy. That Jesus is saying, I'm weak and wimpy. And that's the way they take that. <laughs> you know, we're talking about Jesus here. We're talking about the one who is going to return as, as the victorious conqueror. And as I've said before, you know, He's not coming back to take sides. He's coming back to take over, right? There's not going to be any, it's not going to be any question when Jesus returns. And so, when him, with him using terms like gentle and lowly, meek and humble, that is not weakness, but rather it is strength. It is strength that others don't understand. Think about John 10 as well. There where Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd. And he talks about, I, I lay my life down for the sheep. Now, his disciples at that time, they're like, I don't know what he's talking about. And then he died, and then they finally got it. But they would have thought of that as something weak. And that's why the cross is such a stumbling block to those who don't believe. Because they look at it, and it was, it was the ultimate defeat. It was you are the criminal that is being put to utter shame and you're being shown that you are no match for the Roman Empire. We have conquered you and we have put you down and we're holding you up so that everybody can see that. And so the cross is a stumbling block. Because if we look at it through the world's eyes, we see weakness, we see, we see defeat. But if we look through God's eyes, the eyes of Scripture, we see that this is the strongest man that's ever walked this earth. He just conquered sin. Something that no one else could ever do. Not even all of us put together. And so we see very much that it's not an option between being, you know, some, um, you know, macho, tough, whatever, strong, and weak and wimpy. It's not either one of those. And that's what we want to try to show and trying to show in the study. Under the new covenant, Christ's love sets the character for our roles as husband. Under the new covenant, Christ's character sets the role, or sets the character, his, sorry. His love sets the character for our role as husbands. And so we're saying that headship and submission for us has to be uniquely Christian. Has to be uniquely Christian. You see, it will be, our headship men will be uniquely Christian when it is motivated by other-centered 
love. This is the love that, this is the love of the one who protects like God our warrior. The love of the one who leads and provides and protects like Jesus our shepherd. And so our main point today will be this. To be uniquely Christian, husbands must lead with the other-centered, self-sacrificing love of our Savior. To be uniquely Christian, husbands must lead with the other-centered, self-sacrificing love of our Savior. So let's reorient ourselves to the context. We're in this section of Ephesians where he's taking us through these different ways in which we are to walk in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Ephesians 4.1. And he's spelling out the different ways. And we're in the one now where we're talking about walking in wisdom. But to do that, to walk in wisdom in the ways that he's spelling out for us, wives submitting, husbands loving their wives, we, we can't do it in our own power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why in verse 18 he talked about being filled by the Holy Spirit. We need His power. So if men are going to love their wives in ways that are distinctly Christian, they need the Holy Spirit to be able to do it as Christ loved the church. Keep in mind that Paul is, is tying this, he's rooting all of this firmly to Christ. He told the ladies, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You see, he's necessarily tying those together. You cannot have one without the other. You can't do what he's calling us to do here without it being tied to Christ. In other words, it's going to be distinctly Christian. It must be different. Our headship men must be different from all other forms of headship out there in the world. And there's a lot of headship out there in the world, especially you get outside of Western society and there are the cultures, there's huge cultures, billions of people that practice headship, male headship, okay? Ours needs to look very different from theirs and because they're not doing it as Christ loved the church. Their wives are not submitting as to the Lord. And so men are to lead their wives and set the example It's no wonder why, in Greek, Paul used 41 words to address the wives. Guys, guess how many words he used for us? 116, and that's if you take the shorter reading. There's there's some other alternate readings that are longer, so... There's probably a woman doing that, adding... We have the responsibility to be the leaders, to set the example, and so he spends more time talking to us. Not that we're worse. We're equally bad. We're all sinners. But he puts the responsibility on the husband to set the example, and so he spends extra time on us. Still talking context. We learned in Ephesians 5.21 that we are all to submit to one another. John MacArthur points out that the emphasis of the rest of the chapter, where he says that, is he's meaning 20, verses 25 to the end of chapter 5. So when he's talking about the husbands. The emphasis on the rest of the chapter is not on the husband's authority, but on his duty to submit to his wife through his love for her. 
And just to point out again, the feminists are wrong in the way that they interpret Ephesians 5.21 when they say, you know, to submit to one another. They say basically husband and wife, they share the headship in the home and they share the, the authority. They share that leading role. That is not at all what Paul is saying there. And we've already looked into that, so I'm not going to rehash all that. A husband does not submit to the authority of his wife. He does not submit to the headship of his wife because those aren't real. That's not a thing biblically. But he does submit by dying to self to care for her. And we're going to show that as we walk our way in the coming weeks through this passage. So he, he submits to his wife in the sense of dying to himself in order to care for her. And I've just to give you a reminder... It's, it's like, guys, you know, you come home from work and you're tired and you just want to have, you know, get, you know, a glass of iced tea or Coke or something and, and put your feet up and read the paper. And But the kids have been extra bad hooligans today and mom is frazzled. Guess what? You have to minister to her and you have to take the kids off of her hands and do something and give her a break, Right. Even though you're tired, even though you can say, I've had a long day of work, like mom didn't, right? We have to die to self. That's what he's talking about here. That kind of thing. And then we must do our husbanding in the fear of Christ. Remember back again, verse 21. All of this has to be done in the fear of Christ. If we truly grasp the wonder and awe of Christ's majesty, there will be no place in our marriages for male domination, for abuse. There won't be any place for that. And the fear of Christ, remember, for believers is not terror or fear. It is seeing the, the awe and majesty of Christ and being moved by that to say, Okay, Lord Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it your way. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to obey you. So look with me again, Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands are given, we're given the responsibility to love our wives. Christ is the model for male headship. Not anyone else, not any worldly example. Christ. And as husbands do this well, they bring glory to Christ. They point people to Christ. You see, that's what's on the line here. You may think like, hey, you know, I just don't really have time to work on being a better husband. This is about Christ. This is about drawing attention to Him. Just like we said with the wives, as they submit to their husbands, what they're doing is they're pointing everybody around them to Christ. They're saying... I'm submitting to my husband the way the church is supposed to submit to Christ, our Lord. And the same for, for, for us guys. That if we're godly husbands and we're leading in love, then we're pointing to Christ. We're trying to exemplify Christ in how we live, how we lead. Some Christian men seem to be dealing with fear. Fear that if we don't keep emphasizing the man's authority and rule, that our wives are going to rise up against us and usurp our authority. I'm serious. You read some of these people out there, these guys out there writing, and they're writing against, you know. They seem to be afraid. 
But Paul and the Holy Spirit don't seem to share that fear. They didn't say, okay, husbands, love your wives. Now, okay, just to make sure they don't rise up against you, you know, that you need to you know, exercise your authority and your rule. And he didn't say that. He's, he's not worried about that because you have the Holy Spirit. And he's, when he's concerned, and, and those, those wives have the Holy Spirit. He's not worried. You see, husbands are not commanded to rule their wives or to exercise authority over them. That's not the emphasis here. Commentator John Eady explains, Husbands are not to be domestic tyrants, but their dominion is to be a reign of love. So Paul commands husbands, love your wives. And he uses that term love frequently throughout his address here to the men. Just to make sure we get the point. Love must be our priority. And the command is present tense. It's not like, well, you know, I I did early on in our relationship. I I loved her. I'm done. No, you're not. When you die, then you get to say you're done. Okay? This is present tense. It's a continuous, it must be a continuous habit of loving your wives the way Christ loved the church. And so the command for husbands to love their wives is uniquely Christian. It is also a new covenant command. Harold Honer, commentator and professor, explained it this way. He said, this command, husbands love your wives, is not found in the Old Testament. It's not found in rabbinic literature. It's not found in the household codes of the Greco-Roman era. In other words, he says it is revolutionary. This is a new covenant command. You remember way back in Ephesians 2, we talked about the law of God and the Christian and all. And we're talking about how, you know, the... Those moral laws of the Old Testament are are brought forward. They're no longer a part of the Old Covenant binding on us. That's Hebrews 8, right, and 9. But those moral, those timeless moral requirements are brought forward into the New Covenant. But the New Covenant also adds to that. And like, love your enemy, remember. And here, husbands, love your wives. Okay, that's a New Covenant command. So what then is the essence of godly love, agape, here? When Paul said that Christ loved the church, he elaborated on that to help us understand it. And other passages of Scripture do the same thing. He says that Christ gave himself. He gave himself. You see, so agape gives the essence of agape is to give. Godly love gives. Okay, But it is also other-centered. He gave himself up for her. You see, and then, guys, you see where we're going with this? For her. Okay, For he gave himself for his bride. His death was for her sake. His love is other-centered. It is focused on his bride. This is also supported by God's original design. Uh, Matthew Henry commenting on the creation account, he explained, The woman was made of a rib. And this is really, this is you know cool Puritan way of saying things. So, okay. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's historic Reformed theology, people. That is what the Puritans believe, that's what the Reformers believe, and that's what we ought to believe, because that's the Bible. 
And you know, sometimes men think of themselves as the CEO of the house. Now, there's a sense in which that's true, okay? But that's not the emphasis here. Scripture does teach that men are to serve as the head of their homes, but it doesn't put the emphasis there. That's worldly thinking. Paul is concerned with headship that is uniquely Christian. So he doesn't tell husbands, rule your home or exercise your authority, but rather love your wives. Loving them is how we carry out our headship. And so Paul taught, yes, men do have this headship. They are the heads of their homes. There's no doubt about that. I mean, he gives, you know, feminists and evangelical feminists fits over it because he does say that. And, and they, they try to get around it. They really can't. So he does say that. He does teach, especially like in 1 Corinthians 11, that um, they have, the men have authority in their homes. But when he's talking to those men, he emphasizes love. He doesn't emphasize the authority and the rule. He emphasizes love. The husband's love establishes the model for everyone in the home. The husband's love establishes the model for everyone in the home. He's responsible for making love the personality of the home. Agape should be the personality of the home. He is the chief agape officer of his home. Okay, With apologies to chief accounting officers, I stole their acronym, but he's the CAO. Okay, He's the chief agape officer. A little silly, but hopefully you remember that, guys. That's what you are. You are the one to set this, just like the CEO or, you know, the heads of their different departments in a, in a business are there to drive the, you know, what everybody does and what is our purpose and how do we do it and how do we, you know, execute everything. The same is true for you men. We men, we have to think in terms of my job is to see that love reigns in our home. That it's my job to make sure that happens. And so, and we'll talk about this some more, but, you know, you might have noticed there that it doesn't say wives love your husbands. Now, you have to, and, and I'll talk more later on about that. You are to love your husband, agape. But he didn't tell you to because your husband is supposed to be setting that example for you. And you're to follow his example. And you are, and so we men, we must set this example in our homes. Husband, Christ gave you to your wife because he loves her. And we I said that to the ladies, you know, in, from the other direction. But guys, you need to remember, it's not that, and, and I know we think this way a lot of times, it's like, okay, I'm a guy, I'm going to be the head, this is about me, and I'm going to start a home, and I'm going to invite a woman to come into this home and be a part of it with me, but she's going to serve me, and we're going to have kids, and they're going to serve me, and this is my home, and they serve me. Okay, you don't find that in the Bible. You definitely don't find that in Ephesians 5. You see, the way Christ, if he were to talk to you, he would say, Husband, I put you into the home because I I love your wife. I gave you to her because I love her. She needs you, and I put you there. You see, it isn't about you getting someone to wait on you. Headship, men, is not about you. And it is not for you. 
And this is a huge mistake that a lot of men, and you know, especially I know when we're young, we, we tend to think those ways, and we have to, you know, learn that that's not at all what the Bible is, is telling us. Headship is not about us, men. It is not for us. Ultimately, it's for Christ. It's about Christ. But more immediately, closer to home, if you will, it is so that you can care for your wife, so that you can lead her, protect her, provide for her. It's for her care. And it is for you to set the example of love for your family, for your wife and your kids. That's why he puts you in the home. That's why he gave you the headship. The headship's not for you guys. I know, you know, we may have grown up with that. Dad comes home, you know, expects everybody to, to wait on him hand and foot and that sort of thing. That isn't biblical headship. Biblical headship is he comes home and he sees his wife frazzled and he says, do it, let me take the kids, let me go here. here here's your Coke that I know you like. Go go put your feet up and rest. And uh, you know, I know you got to work on dinner later, but you go rest and I'll take the kids outside and I'll try to wear them out, you know. And that is what he's what the Bible teaches us. Here's why this is part of the overall section of walking in wisdom. It takes great wisdom for a, a husband to love his wife well. Guys, it's not easy. Your wife's a sinner. If you haven't figured that out, here's revelation for you. Your wife is a sinner. Okay? It's not easy. But you're a sinner too, and it's not easy for you to learn how to love. So there's a double whammy against you, but you have to work at it. You have, and so you're going to need wisdom. First Peter chapter three, verse seven. You have to work hard so that you can live with her in an understanding way. What that means is that you have to, you have to understand her. You've got to study her. And it's a lifelong thing because they change. Okay? You know, it, it, the wife you marry, you know, ten years from then, she's going to be different. You have to constantly be studying her to know what is it? I need the wisdom to know what are her real needs. And that doesn't come from asking her what her needs are in that sense. You need to study her because sometimes she'll want things that maybe aren't good for her. You need to you need to be able to look at that and examine and study and what does she really need here? And then how do I meet that need? So, brothers, we, we have a tremendous privilege as heads of our homes. But if you go around crowing about your authority, it's exposing your weakness. Do you realize that? A lot of guys think that, you know, they, they throw their chest out and they're, you know, I have authority and all this. They're just showing their weakness. They think they're, they're showing how strong they are, and they're not. You know, I, I um, was telling Connie about this. There was a guy um, that I went to school with, and his name was Bob, and uh, not my brother Bob. Um, this guy was my age, and um, he was bigger than all of us by a long shot. And he never went around. I mean, nobody ever messed with Bob because he was bigger than all of us by a long shot, right? I mean, he was one of those guys that just, he had a ton of strength in him. And you could see it just in the, his normal activities. 
And so nobody ever messed with him. He didn't walk around like, I'm bigger than all of you, and so you better stay away from me. Don't mess with me. He never, he was one of the most humble guys in our class. Why? Because he was strong, and he knew he was strong. He didn't have to go crowing about it. It's the weak guy that crows about his strength. So, men, we shouldn't go around crowing about our authority. Yes, we have authority, but that shows weakness. Instead, demonstrate your strength by leading your wife and your family in sacrificial love. That's how you show strength. Because that's how Jesus showed strength. The world thought he was a failure. That's why the cross, again, as I said earlier, is an offense to the world. Because they're like, okay, yeah, Mr. Nice Guy comes and gets himself killed. It's too bad he couldn't have been stronger. But we know the full story. Because in his first coming, he wasn't defeating his enemies, he was defeating our enemy, sin. And to do that, he had to become like a lamb and die for us. That is real strength. Then... It w- there will be no question when he returns. All those who have sneered at him and sneered at his cross and sneered at his people, when they see him coming in the clouds on that war horse, not on the little the hum- humble donkey, and when he's able to slay all of his enemies with a word from his mouth, he doesn't even need to send angels, you know, like he did in the Old Testament, go kill 185,000 men. Just a word from his mouth vanquishes his enemies. But you see, sometimes we think, well, that's real strength. What happened on the cross was also real strength. Because he vanquished our greatest enemy, which is sin. And he made it possible for us To be saved, to be rescued, to be brought into his family. So, men, demonstrate your strength by leading your wife and family in sacrificial love. Imitate Jesus. Not the warhorse Jesus. He hadn't come yet. The Jesus who came in on the donkey's colt and allowed himself to be killed, to die. For those he loved. Think back. You know what we studied? When we studied um, the Minor Prophets, I alluded to the Old Testament picture of God as the one who's strong and mighty, the warrior who saves his people. But there are pictures there that, that don't look to us like strength. But they are. Remember Zechariah thirteen seven. The prophecy says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Who's that? Jesus, the, the Messiah. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares Yahweh Sabaoth. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And you've got Isaiah 53. 
looks like defeat. But that was victory. That was the greatest victory the world has ever seen. Because he conquered our sin. He conquered death when he rose again. And then New Testament, John ten fifteen. Jesus, the pattern for you and me, men. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm going to die for them. That is our pattern. That is the pattern of love. Think on these things, on Jesus, our shepherd, and the real strength he had as he came and conquered our sin, died in our place, died for us. Think on this. 